right, welcome to another episode of the CSA podcast. And this is another one of our, in our series, interviewing cybersecurity leaders and really hearing about their journey. If you listen to four, you know, uh, you know the drill, uh, the format will be similar today. You know, where do these people come from? What decisions do they make? You know, what led to where they are today? And what are some things you might do if you're making similar career choices? Or if you're a peer, just learning from what some of your peers have done, you know, because it's interesting. I've heard that that's going to be, um, you know, a number of people's perspective on this is uh, they want to hear people's stories. So uh, we're trying to do all that and say, hey, everybody puts pants on the same way. We end up by a series of decisions over time where we are. So my guest today is Marty Edwards. He's currently the Vice President of Operational Technology Security at Tenable. Marty is a man of many trades. He's a writer. He's a change agent for sure in the industry. He's a speaker. He's an outdoorsman. He's an amateur radio operator. He's a father. He's definitely a control engineer. We'll talk about his origin story. And he's a jack of all trades, grew up on a ranch, a, a lot of things to share. We wouldn't be possible to compress it into one session, but we will do our best uh, to give you guys a highlight of his story, you know, where he started and where he ended up today. Welcome to the show, Marty. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Derek. I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, Marty, I always liken uh, everybody, you know, every superhero has a backstory and security people, and you know, I may be biased, are a kind of superhero. So uh, let's talk about your backstory. I know that it starts on a ranch. Uh, you know, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in on a ranch in Western Canada. And I guess uh, I could caveat that a little bit. My dad was a truck driver. So we actually lived in town, right? My grandparents had the ranch uh, about a half hour, 45 minute drive away. And every summer from when I was 10, I worked for my grandpa on the ranch teaches you a lot about how to get things done with limited resources, a good work ethic, you know, getting up in the morning and, and getting things done. So from there, I went to the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Uh, I have a specialty diploma in process control and automation. So essentially control engineering without the engineering degree. It was a three-year program at the time I took it. And then from there, uh, went into a variety of roles in uh, instrumentation and, and control systems. So let's let's peel back a couple onion layers there with the ranch and your your early years. Where does it does technology come into play, or only when you start going for your uh, your formal education? I was really lucky that in high school I had a mentor that totally inspired me into electronics and technology. So the high school I attended had an actual electronics course or program that was part of the it was part of shop right so it was it was part of the industrial education regime he and i hit it off we're still best friends we've stood up for each other in each other's weddings over the years he was probably 10 a little more than 10 years older than i was so he was a young teacher at the time he really got me hooked on electronics so when i graduated from high school I knew I wanted to do something with electronics, but uh, I really didn't know what. So was that going to be programming? Was that going to be circuit design? Was that going to be radio, you know, RF uh, work? And when I went to the to BCIT, the way that they the way they structured things is your first year was all general studies kind of stuff. And then your second and third years, subsequent semesters were in a specialty area. And I walked by this lab and this lab had like, air pressure and water pumps. And there was all kinds of activity here. And I poked my head in. And I said, what is this? And they said, this is instrumentation. We measure all of these physical properties and then control pumps and water and 
chemicals. And I went, I want to do that. So that's kind of what hooked me into the control system area was this. It wasn't theoretical. It was hands-on. It was messy. It was dirty. And uh, that really appealed to me from my ranching kind of background. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, when I've now had a number of guests on the show whether people have a you know an IT or technical background store or whether they have an engineering operational technology whatever you want to call it, control system you know a background is is this question that it's all you know you, you know it's on these panels at every conference you know where are our security practitioners for this realm you know where are they coming from do they come from IT backgrounds and learn some engineering do they come from engineering and learn some IT you know the truth is there's examples of both um, I have my own opinion on where maybe where the waiting is. But, but the truth is they do come from lots of different backgrounds and you come from process controls. So there's no security yet, even in those early years, you graduate then and you start working in controls, right? You're not talking about security, but security comes in there somewhere eventually. It does. Yeah. So basically I was hired prior to graduation from BCIT. One of the sales representatives for, for one of the vendors at that time, Fisher uh, Controls in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, a company called Norpac Controls hired me right out of school. And I essentially was a field service technician. So I designed, maintained, installed troubleshooting on all of these types of systems. And I'll tell you back then, not only was security not a thing, but us plugging control systems into every other network that we had available in the plant was a thing, right? So I did a lot of work, you know, connecting engineering workstations to the fledgling corporate networks. I mean, often these networks, we were the first people to put networks into plants, right? I mean, the, the distributed control system and the control system engineering environment these were the first networks. The other discipline that is a very close second or may have come a little fur ahead of us is the business networks, right? So you had Big Blue, you had an AS400 or something with 3270 terminals hanging off of it. You know, so we kind of went together and eventually those systems touched. We were doing that without any security. I mean, the password was password or... An, an, yeah, quite often, and it's it's no uh, surprise, but you know, it was the vendor's name, right? So the the username was Fisher, and the password was Fisher, and that was it. And and we we did our thing. Oh wait, we got to edit that out. Those might still be out there. Those passwords. Yeah, those are double top secret passwords. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I remember right, you really you get your chops on control systems. It's not a couple years. It's like sixteen years between at least a couple companies working in these various control environments. Yeah, I'll say in the early days in British Columbia, the majority of my time was spent on in pulp and paper. That was the big automation market at the time, all for that vendor. And so I traveled all over British Columbia working on mainly modernization. So tearing out old single loop pneumatic or single loop electronic controls, putting in the state of the art VMS, VAX VMS based uh, distributed control system. So I'm a deck certified systems uh, installer or something. If you if you know the old digital equipment corporation stuff, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know what you do, but I know what you're talking about for sure. Uh, and that probably on on the weekends you just go out and you know maintain some old deck you know machines, right? I mean that's still a thing, isn't it? I'll tell you what, I've done a lot of cleaning lately, and I actually found an, and posted it on Twitter or something, an old TK50 tape, which was the magnetic tape that you use to load yeah. in these systems. And I posted a picture and a bunch of nostalgia jumped out around that, but I, I put it in the garbage can. So, you know, so what happened is 
the sort of sister company to the company I worked for in Washington state had a need for an engineer to do some modernization in a chemical plant. And this was a plant that manufactured essential high purity silicon for the wafer and chip industry from mineral grade silicon sand. So they old patented union carbide process that they all kinds of nasty chemicals. And they sent me down there. I was the young single guy on the totem pole. NAFTA had just come into effect. So the North American Free Trade Agreement. So I was a Canadian. I went to the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services with the right piece of paper and a hundred bucks. And they put a stamp in my passport and they said, there you go. You go work in Washington state. I did that for a while. Even then, security wasn't really uh, an issue. This is the mid 90s now. That company decided to build another plant in Montana and I was basically the lead control systems guy for the vendor on that. So I, I followed it from literally drawings on a napkin where we're sitting in a Wendy's or something, drawing network diagrams to the actual construction and startup. And so that plant, it's to share some personal story. My wife was uh, an operator in that plant. And so we uh, met and subsequently got married and decided to settle in the area of Washington, Idaho, Montana. Uh, excellent. So you guys can talk Purdue model, uh, you know, if that's you know, over dinner, if you want to. She was more on the chemical side and the turn and valve side. I was more on the uh, which wire is connected to which transmitter side. <laughs> so do you remember when security uh, pops up in this or is it only when you go to the, to the next thing we're going to talk about Idaho National Laboratory? No, I, I do. And and so when we made the decision, my wife and I, to live in the Pacific Northwest area, we just kind of drew a circle around the area we wanted to live in. And I started to cold call plants that had the system that I was factory trained in. And the one that popped up was a pulp and paper facility in Idaho called Potlatch Corporation at that time. And I had a good friend uh, that actually had worked at the same chemical facility that we just talked about. And I called him and I said, looking to change here a little bit. Do you guys have any opportunities? And he goes, Interesting story. He said, I just told my boss yesterday that I quit. They're going to be rehired. They're going to be replacing me. And so I basically walked right in as the senior controls engineer in that facility in 1999, went through the whole Y2K thing and, and, and all that kind of stuff. The security element comes in. My boss uh, at that facility also happened to have oversight over all of the corporate network side of the plant. So our team, I led the, the control system team. There was a peer that led kind of the desktop team. We jointly maintained both of the systems that were the client desktops on all the computers for engineering and production and all that, and the industrial control system. So we had a converged organization, you know, back in the late 90s. Through his motivations, um, you know, I started to follow security a little bit. I went to some SANS, the first actual SANS SCADA con conference, and I have the book here somewhere from, two you know, I don't know, early 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, started to get more and more interested in network segmentation and keeping the control systems away from the malware that was starting to float around on the corporate side. And so and he was very enabling. And so we started to put in the first PIX firewalls to, you know, segment these systems and things like that. And it, it grew from there. 
I'm curious, can you peg a year that security, that, that security kind of element starts being part of your path? Well, I can. So the sort of prelude is the 99 and 2000. It sounds like a cliche, but I'll tell you, 9-11 was the galvanizing event for me. And so I had friends like Eric Byers, who's a visionary in the industrial control system security world, who in the 99 and 2000 space was telling me, Marty, security is going to be a big thing. You need to get into security of control systems. And quite frankly, I told them they were full of it. When 9-11 happened, I distinctly remember driving into work that day. And you have to remember, I live in the mountain time zone. That time, I think we were on the Pacific time zone side of Idaho. 9-11, the tragedies in the World Trade Center had already occurred. I'm turned the radio on and I hear it on the news. If people can take something as commonplace as an aircraft and turn it into a weapon and okay. use it against us, Maybe I shouldn't overlook the security of these systems because then I parked my truck beside a 90 ton railway car full of elemental chlorine that was used in the pulp mill. And I went, huh, airplane, big railway car of chlorine connected to computers that my password is password that are connected to other networks. Maybe I should start to look at this. And so I started to go to more and more conferences and I started to get more and more interested. That's when essentially organizations such as Idaho National Laboratory, which I met at some of these different conferences and events I went to, basically started to recruit me. And in 2006, coincidentally, my start date at Idaho National Lab was September 11th, 2006. That was an interesting kind of chain of events. I could just see the tumblers. I just could picture it. The tumblers that just clicked on that day. You're like, click, click, click. All those years of all the work and the conversation with people like Eric Byers. And it just, yeah, no, it, it, it all came together. And, and, and I kind of, you know, it was an awakening for me that, okay, uh, this is a serious issue. I had a lot of support from my wife and my family. She had worked in, in the military in the U S air force and uh, had held a security clearance before. And so, uh, she encouraged me. I had friends that encouraged me that said, you know what? Your mindset would fit well in the national security apparatus. You will fit well in this security space. I can never repay my family and friends for kind of pushing me along into that space. That starts the next, uh, if my calculations right, a decade of service in that new category. First at INL and then and then uh, the director of the ICS CERT, which we'll talk about. So um, some of our listeners might not know the Idaho National Laboratory by name at all or how important it's been in control system space. I mean, clearly veterans do, but we know we have people that are listening to this show that are trying to figure out what are all the puzzle pieces in this space? Where do things come from? Where, where do people do things? You know, where are courses, you know, red team, blue team, you know, people here, they're like, well, who has that course? So talk a little bit, what do you go there to do? And, and what were your, you know, what was that, what was six, uh, five years, I think at, the, at, at, at uh, INL? Yeah, so uh, I think it's relevant first to kind of describe how INL itself got into that space. So the Idaho National Laboratory is one of the Department of Energy labs, right? There's a number of them scattered across the country. And for the most part, they're spinoffs of the Manhattan Project, right? So the U.S. government decided that they needed a series of 
think tank thought centers uh, and testing facilities to help in the nuclear race. So Idaho's function in that was after the Second World War, after the Manhattan Project had been successful, there were a number of scientists who said, you know, we need to use this energy for peaceful purposes and we want to build a commercial nuclear reactor. And they all happened to be uh, scientists uh, in Chicago, right? So they wanted to build this reactor in, in Chicago. The politicians and other people said, okay, look, we just dropped these bombs and this is what happened. And you want to actually build one for a commercial purpose and you want to do it like at the University of Chicago? Yeah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> so they went on a, a sort of shopping spree and they looked at where can we do this with limited risk? Where and is, no I, is that how it gets picked? Okay, yeah. There's lots of people here. Where is no one? <laughs> so Idaho actually had been a naval gunnery test facility. So in the war, Second World War, when they took the battleship guns, the, the barrels, they relined and machined them really close to where the Idaho lab is because of the water quality, I think is why. So they, they, they machined the guns and then they had to test fire them somewhere before they could send it out back to be refitted on the ship. So there's an 890 square mile piece of land in the middle of the Idaho desert that they used to basically shoot Navy guns to test them. And after the war was over, of course, that function was no longer required. And they looked over and they said, oh, we can use that land. So Idaho's legacy is basically that they have built, tested to destruction, some of them, commercial nuclear reactor designs for commercial power and for the U.S. Navy, you know, carriers, submarines, etc., like they've done 50 nuclear reactors that they've built and tested over the over the years. And that gave them unique experience. They were control system experts. They knew everything about industrial control. They knew everything about functional safety because it was all around the nuclear space. They had the brainwave or the, the thought process to basically take control system engineers and couple them up to cybersecurity people that were also within the lab and make this sort of fusion of hacker mindset and engineer mindset. And that's the genesis of all of the DHS and D Department of Energy control system security projects. And so anybody does that, right? Before DHS was even formed, Idaho National Lab was pitching these kinds of ideas to government entities. They jointly pitched, I think, to Department of Energy and Department of Homeland Security right after DHS was stood up. You people need to be aware that cybersecurity of these systems is an issue, and that's where some of the first funding came from. And I joined shortly thereafter. So I think, you know, I joined in 2006. I think the first efforts were in the 2004 uh, type timeframe. I think someday in the future, it might be fun to do a podcast just on what we're talking about right here, just that. And uh, you might be able to really shed some light. I think there's lots of people interested, even people who know INL don't really know what you just started to unpack about how that all came about. And that's, you know, I don't know where cybersecurity for control systems is first ever, you know, put together, but you guys who were process engineers all say the same thing. We never talked about it. We plugged everything together. And then there was a time we started looking at the implications of it. And you're not the only one to cite people like Eric Byers. You know, Eric is, you know, a pioneer. And so, you know, I'll interview him on the show as well uh, coming up. And it's going to be interesting to say, when did, you know, when did this happen? And so this has got to be some of the earliest stuff is happening right what you're talking about when you go there. 
Yeah, Eric's motivations came a little earlier than mine. I know because I worked for him and with him. It was essentially we were troubleshooting industrial networks. And most of the time we would find problems like a forklift ran over the data highway between the PLCs. And it was Marty's job to carry the time domain reflectometer around and find where that break was. But we had a couple where there were cyber type of incidents, right? And so he started to think, oh, well, maybe this is an area we should get into. And that's back in the ni- late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Okay. So you're at INL. What, what just a you know, quick synopsis, what, what was your role there? So originally they, they hired me essentially to be kind of an industry liaison. They realized that All of their control system engineers were pretty much focused on nuclear experience. They recognized that their cybersecurity, the hacker type people really didn't have the the backgrounds to interface with the uh, industrial engineers and stuff on an external perspective. And so they hired me to be a conduit between industry and the lab. I worked in the training department. I guess I was the program lead for training for uh, a few years. and, And basically, that's where the Red, blue, and some of the genesis of the training programs come from. I mean, those were primarily of my design. There were some other key players there that that helped. And then I got moved up to deputy program manager running all of the Homeland Security work on the industrial cyber side. And then when the existing program manager retired, they bumped me up to overall program manager. So I was essentially the program manager for all of the, at what was called at that time, the DHS Control Systems Security Program, the CSSP. Uh, so I was the manager that led all of that work at Idaho for my customer, which was Department of Homeland Security. And this then folds into, at some point, you get an opportunity to head up the ICS CERT. Yeah, essentially what happened there is... The labs are GOCOs, government-owned, contractor-operated. The vast majority of the people at Idaho are not actually federal civil servant employees. They're contractors that work for the Department of Energy. But as a contractor, there are some limitations. You can't bind the U.S. government. You can't sign contracts on behalf of the U.S. government. You know, you can't have negotiations with our allies and other countries, you know, on behalf of the U.S. government. And so DHS approached me. Sean McGurk had actually just moved on uh, from being the director of the control system security program to other work within DHS. And so they had a vacancy and they said, Marty, we really think that you would be good at this particular role and we would like you to actually be a Fed. So internally, we call that flipping Fed. So I basically went from being the contract program manager to being the federal civil servant that led the program. So now I had direct reports that were federal employees and I was myself a federal civil servant, but I also oversaw all of the program dollars and execution that was at a combination of Idaho. We also had work at Pacific Northwest National Lab, PNNL, Sandia, and and other contracts. But that happened in 2011. So let's pause a minute in the career journey and just talk about So at this point, after all those formative years, now you're doing pretty interesting stuff, high profile. What are some decisions that you made or advice that you got or mentorship that you got? What led to that? What led to going from, you know, I'm in a paper or a pulp plant and I'm the head guy running that control system to I'm in charge of the entire program at INL. And now I'm you know heading up the ICS cert. That's, those are, I don't want to say big jumps. You earned those. You spent years doing it. But there were decisions made along that or things happened. What led to that? 
I think I've been fairly consistent when people have asked me this question over the years. And uh, retrospectively, I look back at those decisions. And, and the impetus for me was after I got bit by the security bug after 9-11, I wanted to go wherever I would have the most influence and impact on the overall security of these systems. For a while, that was natively at INL doing, you know, overseeing the technical work that was going on. For a while, that was with the U.S. government being a civil servant, steer, helping steer policy and making decisions about how do we leverage our relationships with other governments that are doing the same thing. And now, you know, I, I feel that the products and technology have matured to the point where the control or the influence is actually back in the hands of the private sector. So companies like Tenable, where I am right now, have a tremendous amount of impact on the cybersecurity of these environments by virtue of the products and, and that that they put out. So I've kind of followed what I perceive to be the most influential type of position. The point of the spear, uh, so to speak. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a broad pyramid, right? There's a lot of people and stuff behind it. And I don't profess to be that one guy at the tip of the spear. The tip zone then, uh, where, where it's pointing. <laughs> I like to be able to feel good at night that I'm that I'm making a difference, right? That I'm that I can go to bed and, and I've had a good day and that the world is a more secure place because of what I've done. Yeah. You reference a few people, you know, being instrumental. So where does mentorship and advice or whatever you want to call it, where does that play in for you? And how influential was that? Because I think there's a lot of people seeking that. And if you could talk on how does one get, you know, one of those, everybody has different stories. Oh, I just lucked into it. Oh, I sought a mentor out. What role has that played in your journey? Yeah, for the most part, I'll say that I don't think I've really sought mentors out. They've kind of found me. And so I don't know if that's some sort of divine intervention and my path is being steered. You know, we can, that's a separate conversation. But I did have some very influential mentors. You know, I, I mentioned the, the high school instructor who got me hooked on electronics. I mentioned Eric Byers, who really got me hooked on cybersecurity. I would be really remiss not to mention the late Mike Asante, who was involved in some of my first interviews in Idaho. And he really got me hooked on, hey, this is a national security problem. This is a problem where we need people who understand what happens in real life in industry and have the intelligence backgrounds and, and access to information on the government side and the fusion of all that. So, I mean, Mike was one of those just amazing visionaries who could glue all of this stuff together. I think that there is a certain element of luck in it. But I also think that if people are thoughtful about where they want their career path to go, you know, they can seek out these individuals and, and I try to be accessible and approachable, right? So send me a LinkedIn message and tell me, hey, I'm looking at doing this, you know, and, and I'll and I'll answer. And Marty, you you are the, that's been ubiquitous on these interviews. Anybody at your guys' level, all the all the security leaders I've interviewed so far have all pretty much said the same thing about that and been willing and, and say I've been a good, you know, I've received some great stuff and I'm willing to give back. And that theme is concurrent across every single one of these. And so I think that's true. People are like, how do you start that? You know, you, 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 like you said, you pick up the phone or you dial, like you said, you know, you put something in LinkedIn, but you just take action, right? You reach out. And the community, this is a very supporting community. I think it's just don't sit at home wondering how to happen. Reach out, right? 
We have to be because, you know, you can use the term unicorn or whatever. I mean, we, we need to have more people that have a cross-functional capability of understanding the industrial environments. They're not scared to put a hard hat and Nomex or whatever your fire retardant fabric of choice is. And they know something about InfoSec. Those combinations are not easy to find. And so we need more and more and more of them. And so being able to inspire the younger people to get into this, or even people that are in later stages of their careers that want a little bit of a change. I mean, so if you're an instrumentation type of person and you want to do some security stuff, there's a ton of courses you can take. I like to think that there's a lot of opportunity in this field. And I landed in such a niche field that I am in high demand. So my employability is high. I look at some of my classmates from high school that went into sort of more generic engineering tracks and that, and, you know, some have done really well, but maybe picking a really special area can have ups and downs, right? I mean, you can either not have work because you're specialized that there are no jobs, yep. you know, or, um, you know, you land like me and I've, I've been pretty satisfied with my career path. You know, I sometimes ask this, you know, in the last part of the interview, but you've kind of already opened the door to it. If you were talking to somebody right now and said, you know, if you want to look ahead, here's an exciting area within this overall space we're talking about. Here's an exciting area. If you want to be that in-demand person 10 years from now, you're being interviewed or whatever. What would a couple of those areas be? I think having a having some sort of industrial experience on your resume is important if you want to get into this. So if that's early in your career, you know, there's nothing wrong with working in a maintenance type of environment, maintaining the equipment that's in these large factories or on a pipeline or in the electrical grid or something, just so that you know the nomenclature and you understand the nature of those industrial businesses. And then, of course, you know, I like to see some cybersecurity experience and knowledge. And and I, I don't think it's a secret that I am not a proponent of, uh, you know, certification. So if your resume has so many letters after it, because all you've done for the last five years is collect certs, um, your resume instantly goes to the bottom of my pile. I'm not even going to read the rest of it because it tells me that all you've done is chase certifications. I would rather see year blocks of experience where you've had hands-on experience in the topics those certifications cover. Now, one or two of them, because you're an auditor or you're in compliance or you need to have the certification to do the job, that's okay. But having 20 different cybersecurity certifications to me, that's a turnoff. And and I know this is an item of debate over cocktails, yeah. you know, in, uh, in almost every conference that I go to. Almost everyone. Yeah, for sure. If you had to go back and give yourself, uh, you know, any kind of career advice uh, early on, anything you'd go back and tell uh, 20 years ago, Marty? That's a great question. I would say, listen more and talk less. That might sound contradictive because I'm a speaker and I'm well known for doing keynotes and things like that. So, I mean, part of my job is talking like we are right now. But I think that my personality style is that I always had a certain amount of arrogance, perhaps discounted some very valid ideas that were in the room just because they weren't my idea. I think a little bit more humility and a little bit more humble pie maybe uh, would have been a good thing to have on the menu. You know, I, I don't know, is it, do, you, do you get mid midlife and that those sorts of things really dawn? I mean, I, I can hear my dad saying stuff like that, but it only now really is like, yeah, 
I could have listened more and talked less in this meeting or that. Instance. Yeah. I'm saying even five years ago, that would have been a totally different answer. Um, and, and so I do think yeah. that if you cross that 50 barrier, maybe things start to look a little different to you, you know, and, uh, you know, so di- diplomacy, I think. And I think I, I was always relatively good at that as far as brokering the negotiation between, especially within the government, you know, because I had bosses that were driving policy down. And then I had to manage that with what industry wanted. And um, sometimes those were challenging conversations. Yeah, I think you really touched on there. Super important. I, you know, there's a number of people out there who get on, you know, particular issue and they just are so, you know, spun up on, on it instead of, you know, this collegial dialogue. Like, what, what is your point? What are you trying to make? I might not hold your view, but let's talk about it. And there's so many problems that need to be solved by getting people to talk from different, you know, not only different industries, but like even in the same company, get these guys to trust these guys. And, you know, it's dysfunctional in so many places. That advice applies to all that, right? It's like, hey, let's let's take it down a notch. What what is it you're trying to say? Uh, yeah. And listen to that before you know before we try to move forward on uh, on change, right? It could be the times that we're living in. I mean, we see a lot of areas of dialogue, especially in the United States right now, that that could use that kind of temper uh, temperance. But, you know, you can walk into a meeting and come out of the meeting not having to agree with each other, but being respectful of each other's opinions, actually thoughtfully analyzing what the other person had to say. Right. So being present in the conversation and actually listening is not a skill that Marty had in his early years. Probably have to join you. It's the quotient. That's, I hope it's growing. What excites you today? We'll do that as part of lead government <laughs> service. And you go to a association, a very well-known, famous association, which I'm sure, you know, I'd like you to mention. And then you go to to a company, you know, that's offering services in there. That's also pretty well-known. But you've had these very different things, you know, and what excites you today? Maybe talk about those two steps and, and what excites you today. You know, DHS was doing a little bit of restructuring and and, uh, the direction that they were headed was not necessarily conducive to what I wanted to do. So the International Society of Automation, ISA, had approached me, you know, again, call it coincidence or whatever, and said, hey, Marty, the guy who leads kind of our government relations and, and, you know, that area is going to retire. We think you have a huge Rolodex within the government and within the private sector, and you'd be a great liaison here to um, to help us in that area. So, so I left the Homeland Security in 2016, I guess it was. And the dates get fuzzy as we get further down the, down the pipe. Maybe it was 2017. I think and it was uh, June, June 2017. Yeah, I, I could look behind me on the, you know, the retirement, the, you know, the, the plaque. It has the dates on it. Um, but and I went in as managing director of the Automation Federation, which was ISA's kind of government liaison uh, organization. So uh, I did that for a while. ISA went through some leadership changes and, and had a change in CEO. And uh, because of my background in training, they, they moved me more into an operational business role uh, running um, globally um, their training business. And, and that was fine. I, I performed well, I think, in, in that particular role. And uh, then by happenstance, Tenable knocked on my door. 
And uh, they said, uh, look, we're going to do some pretty exciting things in industrial control system security. And it's all kind of hush hush. And uh, this was, you know, during the Indigy acquisition. And they said, we recognize that somebody like you could be a powerful spokesperson for us. You could be a tremendous resource in leading our R&D strategy and in, in this area. And, and so I, I sat back and I thought, you know, because I always had position, you know, in my mind, I always had said, well, I really don't want to go to a single vendor, a private sector. I don't want to be one of those guys <laughs> that, that's essentially just a vendor guy selling stuff. And I had to I had to reevaluate that and say that in reality, companies like Tenable have a tremendous amount of influence in the cybersecurity space. I mean, Tenable is a globally known company in many, many of the Fortune 500s, you know, on the enterprise side, doing vulnerability management and managing the, you know, the risks associated with their cyber ecosystems and being able to leverage that for companies that have operational technology is a huge, huge lever, essentially, to improve the security across the board. Because quite frankly, customers don't want to go out and buy five different products to secure their operational technology. If they have the tenable solution on the enterprise, plugging in the OT stuff and having it all work in a converged environment is a huge, huge differentiator. And I knew the executive leadership there. I mean, the CEO of Tenable, Amit Yaran, he was a U.S. CERT director. So he was a DHS guy just when I was coming into Idaho. Bob Huber, who's the chief security officer at Tenable, he used to work for me essentially on the in Idaho on the, the CSSP project. So I knew the people I felt good about their culture. So you asked me what gets me excited? What gets me excited is that I no longer have to sell or educate people that operational technology or industrial control systems security is a problem. They get it. They read it in the news. It comes across their news feed every day. Just yesterday, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, DHS, and NSA released an advisory saying, fix your OT. There are security problems in OT. So I feel really, really happy, I guess, that I no longer have to spend the majority of my time convincing people of the problem. Now I can convince people that, hey, the technology exists to actually solve some of these problems, right? And, and so that, to me, shows a great maturity in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, heartwarming because it was so things you just said have so long not been the case, but to, for them to start to emerge and be the case and for there to be much wider spread awareness. It seems like, well, I, I think we said, I remember Mike Asante, who I know very well, knew very well, and elite Mike Asante, he was a visionary and we were talking about stuff and, and we were trying to predict like, oh, this is going to happen and we need to get serious about this. And it was years and years and years. And we're only now these things are starting to be the case. They, yeah. they didn't happen then. For 15 years, I've stood on stage talking about conflating industrial accidents with cybersecurity incidents saying, you know, this really wasn't cyber, but it could have been. And you need to prepare for these types of consequences. Yeah. We don't have to do that anymore. We've got ransomware running amok in uh, industrial control system environments, some that's specifically targeting industrial control system environments. Yeah. We have government 
government agencies from multiple countries putting out alerts that nation states are inside these environments, pre-positioning. The threat is real, right? And, and now we have to worry about how do we harden these environments? How do you get the instrumentation, you know, quite frankly, in these environments so that you can detect and uh, harden and prevent these types of uh, intrusions and incidents from happening? Yeah. If you had to pick a couple of areas, like cutting edge areas that somebody could get, you know, I'll throw out some buzzwords, but maybe in there are like, oh, yeah, uh, there's some nuggets in there. Cloud, um, IoT, IOT, drones, you know, where would you say somebody could say, yeah, if you've got some of this bedrock foundational stuff, which you talked about earlier, but if you add some expertise in one of these Mm -hmm. new areas, boy, that could make you very, very much in demand in the future. So I, I, I would uh, I'll, I'll answer it a couple different ways. I think that for me, and this is Marty's opinion, is, uh, you know, the Internet of Things, you know, industrial Internet of Things. I mean, for the most part, I see these as marketing buzzwords. I, I think that I still categorize everything as operational technology. I think you have to uh, consequence or criticality analysis there. We're misapplying, you know, commercial grade technology and safety critical applications, and we're connecting the wrong things to the internet and 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 things like that. So it's important to know, I guess, the distinctions and how the terms are used. But I think that if it was me, I would pay more attention to the evolution or movement to cloud-based technologies in the control system space. As a hardcore control system engineer. I get really nervous about stuff running in the cloud, right? I want my control algorithm running as close to the valve or the pump or the motor as possible. But I also have seen with my own eyes, you know, kind of really sound cloud applications of certain pieces of the control system environment. And I'll give an example uh, without disclosing, you know, the actual organization or, or, or area. You know, so think about a SCADA type of implementation, water or electricity, where you've got substations or pumping stations that are geographically dispersed across maybe an entire country. In the old days, the company would maintain their own microwave or fiber optic communications backbone. They would maintain server capabilities in all of these substations to gather all that data and bring it into their headquarters or their control center. And it takes a, a lot of maintenance to keep microwave RF stuff, you know, squirrels chewing and stuff, birds building nests in antennas. We've, we've wind, you know, trees, you know, we've seen it all. They did a thorough analysis and they said, you know what, if we go to a cloud-based infrastructure, you know, such as Azure or AWS, what we can do is basically get rid of all of the ownership of all of that equipment, all of that infrastructure, and contractually get that service. And they were successful in negotiating the contract that if that service went down, there were penalty clauses. So they said, it costs us less. They have guaranteed us higher uptime than we could even achieve with our own maintenance personnel. So it was a no-brainer. So they basically moved all of that type of infrastructure into the cloud type of environment. And I think we'll see more of that. I think you'll see things like Open Process Automation Group, which is pushing some of that control further down into the field. I mean, we see control valves that have PID algorithms running right in them. So, So we see the compute power going to the edge in the industrial area. 
But I see, I think you're going to see the analytics, the data analytics, the uh, all of that data lake kind of stuff. That's all going to move up into the into the cloud, I think. And so, from a security perspective, you know, I think we're going to have to follow, right? So, so I I think you'll see the majority of those kinds of applications move into those cloud environments. Now, that doesn't mean that the control itself is in the cloud, right? You have to have some failback that. If the network disappears, these actual valves and motors and pumps can autonomously continue to do their job without having that sort of higher level analytical capability in place. And there has to be some local caching of information to be able to backfill when the connection comes back and things like that. But that would be my recommendation is be conversant in those types of technologies and be um, knowledgeable enough to know where to draw that line or where to make the recommendation for, okay, this is as far as we're comfortable in going. I think that's a, a great ending for our show. It's a, it's a good nugget. I think people are, you know, a lot of people are looking for that, you know, where, where should I put my time and energy to try to differentiate myself in the future? And that's a good one, your views on those things. Well, thank you, Marty Edwards, Vice President of Operational Technology and Security at uh, Tenable for being on the CSA podcast and sharing your personal journey to over many years in this space. You're one of the early pioneers in securing our operational technology. Thank you. Well, thank you, Derek. It was a, it was a lot of fun to kind of relive some of those, uh, those old days. And I'd be happy to come back anytime to dive deeper into any of these subjects. So thanks for the opportunity and look forward to doing it again. Great. I look forward to taking you up on that. I think there, I made some notes uh, of some things we could uh, just just focus on that would be probably really illuminating for for lots of people, even veterans in the space that might not really understand how that particular thing came about. So that'd be fun. I would like to do that. Thanks again, Marty.